When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today let the word go forth fool me once are you fired up i'm not a crook are you ready to go shame on shame on you it's abe lincoln's top hat hosted by ben kissel boom you can't get fooled again Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel uh, with uh, Marcus Parks, as always. Hey, Ben. Hi, Marcus. How are you? I'm good, man. How about you? I'm good. I've been watching this uh, Netflix series, Dirty Money, Ooh. but it's not about people who used money for cocaine, because money <laughs> uh, is actually the most filthy thing that you can possibly touch, yeah. tangible money. You yeah, know, it's course. dirtier than toilet bowls, they say. Yeah, but you can't buy Coke with toilet bowls, <laughs> uh, I guess. Uh, but it was a great docuseries. That we mentioned the payday loan scandal with Molly Neffel last week. By the way, I want to call out Fiat Chrysler, Fiat Chrysler. Fiat, yeah. It's 120 million they gave to their employees, not 120,000. It's not a math podcast, and 120 <laughs> million is still very, very little. Going back to the Crumbs Act uh, that that fellow pushed through in order to uh, mock Nancy Pelosi. Dirty Money, you got to check it out. It's on Netflix. There's a great uh, episode called The Confidence Man, and it's all about Donald Trump, his, uh, his uh, corporations, and basically how he's made money over the years. He failed. You know, everything, everything fell apart. In the early 2000s, he was a punchline. And then uh, he gets into uh, The Apprentice, and next thing you know, people just bought it hook, line, and sinker that this guy was the greatest leader on the face of the planet, much to the chagrin of the producers of that show. Uh, because they were like, what did we do? What have we created? We didn't think anyone would think it was real. I'm sorry! Uh, but of course, we live in a time where the the lines have been so blurred between reality and fiction that now we have a reality show president, and it feels like we're living in an episode of The Simpsons. So that, that's where we're at right now. So check out that docuseries, Dirty Money. Very interesting over there on Netflix. We want to talk first here about uh, the Parkland High School shooting. Obviously extremely devastating. A lot to get to with that. Uh, later on in the episode, we have a conversation with Professor Robert Fitrakis, And we talk about uh, the Russian meddling in the 2016 election. They began in 2014 Putin's got a lot of time on his hands, mm -hmm. and he loves to rub those hands in stew. <laughs> and uh, this was obviously a very long game that the Russians were playing. So we talk about uh, all of that stuff with, uh, with Professor Fatrakis. so make sure you stick around and listen to that interview here at the end of the episode. But let's begin in Parkland. 
Uh, 17 students are dead. Uh, this fellow, Nicholas Cruz, he was 19 years old. He was able to buy 10 weapons in a year, mm. uh, stockpiling weapons. This guy had a real, real traumatic uh, upbringing, you know. Uh, his father had passed away. His adopted mother passed away three months before he went to live with this family that took him in. I don't like to see anyone blaming the family that took him in. I think they were trying to do uh, the best they could for this kid. He was on the radar of... Uh, of um, Authorities, everyone understood that he had some mental uh, illness issues, and we'll talk about that, Marcus, here going forward. He was also on Snapchat cutting himself uh, at times, saying that he wanted to uh, you know, commit acts of, of violence, specifically gun violence. He was reported. People saw something. They said something. But the authorities did nothing. And if you want to have this notion of see something, say something, they've got to follow it up with action. And I think they really dropped the ball on this situation, specifically because Nicholas Cruz was out there on YouTube using his real name, talking about how he wants to shoot up schools and how he has uh, an immense amount of anger towards humanity. I don't understand how they weren't able to see that as a massive red flag. At the same time, the FBI is a very large institution. I believe it's 35,000 employees the Russian uh, collusion investigation that Mueller is doing oh, did on, not man. take away oh, okay. from uh, <laughs> from uh, well yeah why would you, why would you think I would say anything else uh, did not take away from the FBI's ability to investigate not. this but this is what some people are saying yeah uh, specifically Donald Trump with his with his tweets uh, and things like that so it comes from the top and there are some people saying see the FBI is distracted because they're focused on Trump. None of that is true. They have the ability. They have a, It's a very large uh, institution, but they did drop the ball on this case. Yeah. There's a lot of mistakes that have been made in this country when it comes to our gun laws and a lot of mistakes that have been made when it comes to uh, recognizing the red flags. And this was just such a sad wake-up call, hopefully, for a lot of uh, members of Congress that something needs to be done, specifically this. 19-year-olds should not have the ability to get a semi-assault rifle. He was 18 when he bought it. Interestingly enough, he couldn't have bought a handgun. And the theory behind this is handguns are, uh, you can conceal them. So you can't buy a handgun because it's concealable, but you can buy an AR-15, I guess, so you can publicly show that you're a threat. <laughs> I, I, I don't fully understand hunting. the logic here. It's all about hunting. It's like, you you know, you can buy a shotgun, you can buy a rifle, because ostensibly these things are, are for hunting. They're human, for they're, recreation. AR-15s are military weapons, yes. right? The only thing that they uh, hunt are human beings. And uh, so there is no reason why this guy should have been able to buy these weapons at 18 years old. Obviously, at, at 19, he put them into practice. One thing that's really aggravating me here is the conversation regarding the kids now. Unlike uh, Columbine, those, those students didn't have social media. Unlike Newtown, those kids were six years old, for crying out loud. We have uh, near adults here. We have 16, 17, 18-year-old kids speaking out about gun violence. A lot of these kids born after Columbine, the majority of all of them, yeah. uh, born after Columbine, which is you know m makes you look in the mirror and realize how old we are. Um, <laughs> but... They are really being active. They, they're doing lie-ins. Uh, they're, they're publicly speaking. And I'm very proud of those kids. And I think they have the right to uh, speak their mind. Once someone comes into your uh, high school, threatens your life, kills your friends, 
uh, your words matter. And your words matter before that as well, and they should have been heard before. And I think this is uh, great because, you know, a lot of times when these things happen, the politicians always say, well, it's too soon to talk about the tragedy. And now you've got the kids that are survivors of the tragedy that are actually a part of the tragedy saying, no, we're going to talk about this now. We're going to talk about it immediately. It happened to us, so it's our right to talk about it now. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm seeing as well that is aggravating me is a lot of the people on the right are saying, shut up. Yeah. Don't, don't talk, kids. Uh, your opinions, you're, you're, you're a child. Uh, they don't matter. But at the same time, they, they defend this 18-year-old, 19-year-old now, Nicholas Cruz. They think that he was able to buy a semi-assault rifle. You know, if you don't think that a child's opinion matters when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, then you should not believe that they should be able to buy a semi-assault rifle. Because if you don't think they have the mental capability to voice a political opinion, then you should also not believe they have the mental capability to handle a weapon that is of military grade. Absolutely. And that is what's, uh, you know, people are just so hyper-partisan. And you see this when it comes to InfoWars. Of course, Alex Jones went immediately to this notion that all the children who are speaking are being coached, all this really bizarre stuff happening. And one of the students, uh, his father was a former FBI agent, so they say this is proof uh, that he's some uh, subversive member of the deep state. I mean, we are talking about children here uh, who... When we talk about like coaching, when you give a public presentation, it's nerve-wracking. Uh, you have to practice. There was one uh, piece of footage of this kid talking to a CNN reporter, and he would say a sentence and then kind of like stutter and pause a little bit and repeat the sentence. And they're like, this is evidence of coaching. This is a child no. who is nervous in front of a camera, yeah. nervous in front of a microphone. Public speaking uh, is considered by most people the, their largest fear even more than death. Yeah. So this is not an easy thing to do. Absolutely not. And I read uh, the story, you know, the uh, how I've been, you know, consuming news lately is, you know, just reading uh, the stories. And I read quotes from these kids. Uh, I read quotes of them talking. It's like, oh, that sounds like a 16-year-old talking. That sounds like a 17-year-old talking. They're trying their hardest. They're not being coached. They're trying to articulate their thoughts when they're speaking in front of millions of people on CNN. That's extremely difficult. It's I would, I would stumble over my word. 17, eight years, uh, 18 years old. Absolutely. Specifically in this hyper-partisan world where everyone can attack you on social media. Really remarkable to see the adults in the room once again, acting like the children. Donald Trump received the most amount of money from the NRA than any other candidate in 2016, $30 million, they estimate. And it's very difficult for him, I think, to break away from Wayne LaPierre and the NRA lobby, Marco Rubio as well, one of the uh, a senator that has uh, received some of the most amount of money as well from the NRA. They really have these politicians in a stranglehold and that's why what we see uh, the Donald, uh, the, the Trump administration pushing forward is really uh, nothing much. I, it is a they want to basically just follow through with the laws that are already on the books. They're not even talking about expanding background checks at this point. We're not even talking about uh, raising the age of gun uh, semi-assault rifle gun ownership to 21 or 25. I mean, this guy can't even rent a car, you know. He can't even drink alcohol. He can't do a series of things. We have limitations on so much in this country, and for some reason, we just cannot get over this idea that an 18-year-old should be able to buy 10 
uh, weapons. I mean, 10 guns. And the family that took Nicholas Cruz in, they said that they had them in a, uh, in a lockbox, in, uh, in a safe. They thought they had the only key. What can you do? I mean, if a child, if, if we allow a child, 18 years old, with the past of Nicholas Cruz uh, to get a weapon, that's just a recipe for disaster. And all the warning signs were there and the adults failed. There's money to be made. That's all it is. I mean, how much money do you think these uh, gun companies are going to lose uh, if they prevent, you know, 18 to 21 year olds from buying guns, from buying assault rifles? Uh it's what it all comes down to. You know, it comes down and they think and they've got this kind of slippery, slippery slope mentality uh, where they think, OK, if they if we let them take away guns from 18 to 21 year olds, then it's going to be 21 to 25 year olds, which is, you know, they're it's all about the chiseling away of uh, their quote unquote rights, what they believe. Uh, and they will hang on to those rights no matter what the cost. And it goes to this idea, again, of hyper-partisanship, no one wanting to give an inch because they're concerned that the other side is going to take a mile. And because of that, because of the ineffectiveness of Congress, because of the inability of us as a country right now to communicate with one another, we are living in in a culture, in a time that has laws completely counterintuitive to public safety and completely counterintuitive to what the vast majority of Americans want to see. When it comes to background checks, 98% of Americans want to see them expanded. As a matter of fact, the Trump administration, uh, they blocked an Obama-era rule that would have stopped an estimated 75,000 people with mental disorders from purchasing guns. How is this possible? How can an adult say, uh, you know, if you have a mental disability or if you are mentally unstable, we want you to have a gun. You have a right to have a gun. Uh, It really is, uh, it's just kind of mind-blowing, the situation that we're living in right now. And the fact that they are proactively uh, doing away with an Obama-era regulation that is total common sense. I mean, and, you know, if you want to talk about Obama's taking your guns, all that kind of stuff, it's simply not true. Gun sales went through the roof uh, when Obama was president. I, there were, it, was, it was the greatest eight years for uh, the gun companies, for the NRA. I mean, they made so much bank on this idea that Obama was taking your guns. Everyone went to collect them all like they were Pokemons. But uh, unlike Pokemons, uh, you know, this Pikachu can kill. And it's, <laughs> it's very uh, – it is just – It is so sad to see just the complete lack of rational thought on such a regular, consistent basis. And it's just mind-numbing, I think, for the vast majority of the American people to sit here and see what happens in our country and feel completely powerless to stop it. Because even now, uh, the politicians have very, very little will to do anything. Donald Trump was speaking today. He mentioned how school safety is going to be on the top of his administration's list. Words, words, words. That's all that Donald Trump has ever been. Uh, he's as you know, he's as shallow as a kiddie pool. I believe nothing will happen, and I think uh, the NRA stranglehold is only going to break in a generation of a couple election cycles. The great thing about these kids now, 16, 17, 18 years old. Voting age, this is going to stick with them. They're going to be advocates for rational gun reform, not taking anyone's guns away. I want to have a gun. I love the idea of having a Hunter S. Thompson uh, arsenal. You know, it sounds fun. But at the same time, we have to be reasonable about, uh, about our 
uh, personal desires uh, to have a, a, a gun for individual safety and the mass amount of casualties that are uh, that uh, that can be uh, you know that can occur when it comes to AR-15s and these are semi-assault rifles. You say that this is a, a hyper-partisan thing, or you bring up a hyper-partisanship. Uh, this one you can put solely on the Republicans. Uh, the Democrats are not there to take away all gun rights. They're not there to chisel away gun rights until you no longer are allowed to have any kind of gun. It's this one. Yes, there is a, a ton of things out there, a ton of issues uh, that are held in gridlock through hyperpartisanship. This is not one of them. Uh, this is something that the Republicans are holding on to as tight as they possibly can at whatever cost, because as you said, uh, Donald Trump was given more money than any other presidential candidate uh, mm -hmm. by the NRA. The NRA owns the Republicans, and they know it. This is a long time coming. In 1996, uh, Congress passed this so-called Dickey Amendment, which declared that none of the federal funds uh, would be allowed to go in, uh, would be allowed to um, be used to promote or advocate gun control. This was for the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. The Dickey Amendment basically uh, explicitly prohibits the CDC from conducting gun violence research. It prohibited the CDC and later other federal agencies like the National Institute for Health of Health from lobbying for gun control legislation. Nevertheless, uh, the provision was a shot across the bow and had a chilling effect. A second shot was Congress taking away the $2.6 that the CDC's injury center had been spending annually to support gun violence research. The, sh the third thing that happened here was the agency director fired the person most closely identified with gun violence prevention research. That person... Uh, went on, uh, you know, obviously to become an advocate. So the CDC's research effort was was, re was reduced by more than 90%. I mean, so we have a Congress, uh, you know, beginning in 1996 with this Dickey Amendment that wasn't even allowed to do research on gun violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, how crazy is that? That is one of the, it, it's, it's really, again, it is, it's mind-numbing, it's mind-blowing. Things uh, were supposed to change after Columbine. Obviously, they did not. Things have progressed. They've gotten worse. And now we have a situation where high school kids uh, have to do drills where they hide in closets, uh, where they are just preparing for the worst. And it is completely uh, insane that we have to have our students wasting uh, time during their educational day, during when they're supposed to be studying, hiding in closets and, uh, and concerned about a possible invasion from a mad person who has a gun. Some schools have active shooter alarms now. They do, I know. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, we keep talking about dystopia and uh, we're edging closer and closer to it. Active shooter alarms right. in high schools, in elementary schools, in junior highs. Uh, this is astounding. Uh, I mean, that, that where we are in uh, in America right now, it is absolutely astounding when we look around uh, and see where we are as a country and how we can't get anything done. And it all comes down to money. It all comes down to money. Every mm -hmm. single bit of it, everything comes yeah. down to money. So uh, that's that's my personal thoughts and yeah. Marcus's personal thoughts on this Parkland shooting. Hopefully, again, at 21 years old uh, to get a semi-assault rifle. I think that's the least we can do. <laughs> of course. Get out of high school. <laughs> what being 16, 17, 18 years old is a mental disorder. It's a nightmare. <laughs> being a teenager is so unbelievably difficult. 
more difficult now probably than when we were teenagers with the rise of social media. You never get to disconnect from your bullies or from your friends. Everything is captured on video. If you make a, a, a mistake that all of us made when we were 14, 15 years old, awkward, not understanding how to you know, necessarily act around other human beings, you're, you're forming as a human being. Your brain isn't fully developed yet. The idea that an 18-year-old should be able to purchase 10 rifles uh, in a single year, specifically one who was already on the radar, is, is just beyond. And I, these students, I understand their anger, I understand their rage, and uh, they have every right uh, to that. I think uh, one of the things that the NRA and uh, one of the things that the Republicans are hitting on, and it seems that they're hitting on this harder and harder every single time there is a mass shooting and uh, what they're hitting on is mental illness. They keep hitting on uh, this concept of it's not a gun control problem. It's a mental illness problem. And the harder uh, they hit it, I think the more of a chilling effect it has in this country when it comes to people with mental illness, people that are suffering from mental illness, because what these people are starting to do more and more is equate mental illness to mass shooter. Right. Uh, they're equating mental mental illness equals dangerous when it doesn't need to be that way. We don't right. need to say we need to keep guns out of the hands of the mentally ill. We all we need to do is say we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people mm -hmm. that's all we need to do of course yeah. and and that's the other thing as well is that if if this is a mental illness issue if you do say that this is a mental illness problem then god damn it do more for the mentally ill in this country mm -hmm. we don't do anything we no, do we, goes, we do nothing for the mentally right. so ill we, in this so country. So we have Reagan throwing away the mentally ill uh, in the 1980s, right? Cutting a lot of funding to those institutions that were desperately needed uh, to help individuals with with mental uh, uh, illness. Uh, you know that we've all. Uh, to some degree or another have. Then we have, again, the Dickey Amendment, which it's insane to me that the CDC was not allowed to do any kind of research. And then we have the situation just recently where Donald Trump uh, does away with this regulation, not allowing to have, uh, n trying to uh, halt 75,000, up to 75,000 people with mental illness from owning guns. So it is just such an obvious, systematic uh, deregulation or just a, such an obvious uh, every step is just so obvious to see where we are today. How do we get here today? Just uh, multiple, multiple reasons. This isn't, a, this isn't an issue that happened overnight, and this isn't an issue that's going to be solved overnight. But one of the things I think we can definitely do, get rid of this Dickey Amendment, uh, have some research in gun violence. We need to figure it out. What's the NRA so afraid of? They say that uh, they argue that uh, research would impede on, uh, potentially impede on people's Second Amendment's rights. What are they afraid of? Yeah. You know, every social science, every science understands uh, they have a goal in mind and they, they work on, uh, you know, scientific uh, procedures. And sometimes uh, they get results that they don't necessarily like and they've got to scrap five years of research and go back to the drawing board. I'm sorry, NRA. Sometimes you have to, you know, have studies you know, use science and figure out uh, a better way forward. Because they basically right now, all they want to do is preserve this very bizarre status quo that they've helped create over the generations. And it's obvious 
uh, that it's leading to the death of far too many people. Way too many people. So. And, it, and I think it's going to have an even further effect than that, because, I mean, what we've seen uh, again and again is that, you know, the president's words matter. There are plenty of people out there, a ton of people out there that take everything he says seriously. They take it to heart. They take it as their leader telling them what to think. Uh, and man, him saying that, you know, mental illness is the cause behind this, is that, you know, mentally illness or mentally ill people are potentially dangerous. Uh, I mean, I can see that opinion trickling right down to the dinner table you know that mm-hmm. trickles right down to regular Americans sitting around the dinner table right down to their house and you know looking at you know their children you know and not letting their children say hey I might have a problem here because they don't want their children to be dangerous and their children don't want to be thought of as dangerous and so they yeah. just keep it all inside uh, and suffer and I'm not saying they keep it inside mm. until they actually become dangerous I'm just talking about human suffering here uh, that in this country seems to not necessarily be a concern anymore. People are just not communicating with each other nearly enough. Um, so let's move on here. I mean, okay, so that's that's basically the the Parkland, uh, you know, shoot. That's, that's our opinions on that. Uh, let's move on here to uh, what happened regarding the 13 indictments coming from Robert Mueller. Three corporations, 13 Russians were indicted. Uh, none of them will ever come to the United States and face trial, I don't think. Putin might end up killing them. Uh, who knows? But there's one uh, dude, they call him Putin's chef. It's Pergozin. He started off as a hot dog man, and then he became the ultimate caterer for the Kremlin and the oligarchs. Uh, he, was, uh, he was indicted, and basically what we found out is that all of this began in 2014. Uh, Obama, or, uh, Donald Trump still refuses to, uh, to enact any kind of sanctions against the Russians, against the Kremlin, which is absolutely confusing. I don't understand why that's the case. And uh, we've just learned a lot here when it comes to how long this process is and what it actually looks like in real life. Evidently, in Russia, they actually have troll farms. Mm-hmm. So, Marcus, you did, you did a little research on that. I checked out uh, an interview with the guy who actually worked at one of these troll farms. He worked there for three, four months. He said that there were four floors there. Uh, three of the floors were devoted specifically to to Russian disinformation where you would have... That would take place in Russia? It would would take place in Russia and it would be geared towards uh, Russian news sites Mm -hmm. uh, where they would be playing these amazing PSYOPs games where they would essentially argue with each other on the comment sections of these news sites where one person would make a statement, the other person would say, hey, I disagree with that. The other person, the first person would post like a news article and make a little argument and then the second person would say like, oh, Oh, okay. I agree with you. Right. You have co- you have convinced me. Where it's this illusion of conversation, where it's this uh, illusion right. of people actually having like reasonable arguments with each other, uh, and, and then it snowballs, right? It because snowballs. It, it attracts uh, it attracts other people to the conversation. It reminds me of those nineteen in the nineteen nineties. We didn't have a lot of toys, you know. Mm-hmm. We had Game Boys and stuff. Not not what the kids have today with their apps. <laughs> All those but apps. We did have splat balls. Yeah. Ooh. Remember splat balls? I love splat balls. Splat balls were something you could get at a vending machine for like 50 cents. You throw it against a wall and it splats. <laughs> and then us as dumb 90s kids were like, this is pretty incredible. <laughs> if you notice how it splats, that's awesome. <laughs> 
Along the way, about 15 minutes into playing with this thing, every time it falls on the floor, it picks up dirt. Mm -hmm. And by 20 minutes in, it is filthy, it's disgusting, it's trash. And that's exactly what these Twitter conversations or Facebook conversations were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were just picking up trash. And when I say trash, I mean trashy political arguments, basically. And then slowly it becomes just true garbage. But people treated it as if they were actually having conversations with fellow peers. Mm -hmm. And that's just on the Russian side. Uh, There were three floors that were, I mean, this thing is mostly concentrated towards uh, Russia, but this guy said the fourth floor, that was what they called the Facebook floor. Mm. And in order to work on the Facebook floor, you had to take an English test. Uh, And on this English test, it would essentially be essays where they would ask him questions like, what do you think of vegetarians? Or what do you think Hillary Clinton's chances for the 2016 election are? So relatively in-depth questions when it it comes to what we are as an American people. I don't think they have a lot of uh, vegetarians in Russia. I'm just going to throw it out there. (laughs) Well, in-depth questions that show your communication skills. And unless you had perfect English, then you were not allowed to work on the Facebook floor. And by the way, the Facebook floor paid twice as much as the regular floor. It was $700 American uh, a month to work on the regular floor, and it was $1,400 to work on the Facebook floor. It's a lot of money. Yeah, and this guy, he said he couldn't, he speaks, you know, I mean, I just read uh, the interview, but it seemed as if he uh, spoke very uh, solid conversational English, but his English wasn't good enough for it. They didn't Mm. allow him to work there. Can Uh, you imagine if Facebook had the same standard for actual Americans? (laughs) You have to pass uh, 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 an English spelling test. You know, you have to you have to pass some kind of intellectual exam in order Mm -hmm. to post on Facebook or Twitter. I think the world might be a better place. I think they just called it the Facebook. I'm not sure exactly what all what all psyops they worked on there if they worked on just facebook or if they worked on facebook twitter and all the separate news sites uh but this guy he said uh that he got a look at some of the people that worked on the facebook floor like you know during smoke breaks and all that because you know how much those russians love cigarettes got to (laughs) you said he uh, took a look at them he said they were hipsters they were young people like they were all young people young hip people uh, and those are the ones that are essentially going into uh, Americans' Facebook feeds, Twitter feeds, uh, and essentially stirring up the pot. So now we have a situation. What is Twitter going to do? What is Facebook going to do? Facebook has presented one plan where they are going to send tangible paper postcards to people who want to set up uh, political action advertising, right. political advertising, just to prove that those people are in the United States. So they'll send them this postcard that has a uh, identification code on it. Uh, and you have to you have to you know type that in, and then they they prove that you're in Poughkeepsie or whatever it might be. So they're working on it. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, Twitter and Facebook has been very hesitant to work with the federal government when it comes to uh, you know um, their algorithms and just their platforms in general. And I understand it, 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 we we don't want the government to take over all of our social media and things like that, not by any stretch of the imagination. Otherwise, we might as well be uh, living in Russia, you mm-hmm. know. But I think something does have to be done. Done in order to prevent uh, what's going on and what happened in 2016. As we talk with Fetrakis, Bob Fetrakis, a little bit later on uh, here in the show, this has happened before. The U.S. has participated in cyber warfare and uh, um, you know uh, uh, you know messed with people's elections, uh, messed with nations' elections for a very long time. But it does seem to be a new game now, a new area where the Russians are excelling. And what's next? Is it the big banks? Is it the utilities, uh, government institutions? The cyber retaliation, we have to have a cyber retaliation uh, against uh, the Russians at this point because they are 
you know, it reminds me of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were throwing, uh, you know, they they were getting stuff up in space before we were, and it really freaked us out. And I think this is another indication where we realize that we are a little bit behind in this process, mm-hmm. and we need to step it up. The real world ramifications of this stuff is uh, devastating. Uh, black turnout in the 2016 election dropped for the first time in a presidential election in 20 years. This is according to the Pew Research Center. Turnout fell from a record high 66.6% in 2012 to 59.6% uh, percent in 2016. The largest drop on the record was uh, for black Americans. And I think that goes into the divisiveness of what was happening when it comes to social media and these bots and uh, just people uh, participating in just rhetoric that was extremely harmful to uh, the motivation to have other people vote. You know, uh, voter suppression was an emotional voter suppression. Also, I mean, there was also uh, the gerrymandering, the redistricting, the closing of certain polling stations, which was a very tangible uh, uh, example of voter suppression. But the emotional voter suppression was also there. And if you look at what happened on Twitter, what happened on Facebook, there are some people who say, who cares? They're stupid Facebook ads. And I understand that argument. But at the same time, if Facebook ads don't work, if Twitter ads don't work, if Instagram ads don't work, then why are companies investing millions and millions of dollars in them? Of course they work. I've purchased things off of Instagram. We've all, we've all uh, at this point, seen something advertised to us on these kind of websites that we've gone for, yeah. you know? So, of course they work. Otherwise, corporations wouldn't be using them to sell their products. Yeah, they would have stopped long, long ago. Right. And uh, you brought it. Um, we're going to listen to the uh, the Fitrakis uh, interview later. Uh, and you bring something up in that interview uh, when you said we talk about the uh, Obama election, the 2008 election, and just the Obama presidency. And uh, you said that that also coincided with the rise in social media. Uh, right. And I think that, you know, people say, say that the uh, rhetoric of uh, political discourse has changed so much since the Obama election. And I think uh, we're kind of I think we're focusing on the wrong thing here. I think what instead of saying, like, since the Obama years, I think we should be, be saying since the advent of social media, social media is poison to the entire world. We were not meant to have this sort of tool. We were not meant to have communication at this level. I read this uh, great article Mm. uh, about this uh, guy... He was an internet utopianist uh, where he was one of the guys back in the early 90s saying, you know what? The internet is going to change the way we do everything. It's going to make the world a better place. We're going to be able to talk to everybody. The internet is going to make the world uh, essentially a utopia eventually. Uh, And he wrote an article at the end of last year that was a mea culpa. He said, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was so absolutely wrong. We did not think this through. We did not think of how people's brains were going to be affected by this because the the point that he makes is that within yes humans are very adaptable but within a couple thousand years in the long scheme of th- things that's no time at all in a couple thousand years we went from villages to cities to globally communicating with right. people, to being able to communicate with absolutely anyone uh, and our brains can't handle it. Right. You know, we can't handle seeing everybody's innermost thoughts at every point at all points in time like i can go and i can see the innermost thoughts mm-hmm. of i can read a thousand people's thoughts in an hour two hours right i was not meant for that we were absolutely not meant for that this shit is scrambling our brains and we've got to get it under control somehow i just don't know how the cat is out of the fucking bag right 
you can't and you can't wrangle a cat. <laughs> I heard that. Maybe Garfield. It's kind of it's kind of the same thing as uh, it's almost the, on the same level as uh, the guns argument. You know, like yeah. what do we do now? There's what do we more do now? Gun, there's more guns than people in the United well, States. You know, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How do we fix this? Just to circle back to the gun argument, just uh, just briefly, and then we'll get to this interview here. Uh, well, number one, uh, even the congressman, his name is Jay Dickey. He's the Republican out of Arkansas that the Dickey Amendment uh, was named after. In 2015, a little bit later on in his life, he actually was calling for bipartisan collaboration to restore funding to research. Mm-hmm. So uh, he sort of had a, uh, a come-to-Jesus moment, I suppose, and realized that uh, the 96 Dickey Amendment was completely counterintuitive <laughs> to public safety, which is all our politicians should be worried about. Yeah. Public safety should be paramount uh, when it comes to them. But uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, and uh, it's life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's what they should be focused on. Absolutely. Uh, But when it comes to what Marcus just mentioned, as far as the cats out of the bag regarding guns, uh, we have seen some people on social media. I've seen with AR-15s, they're sawing them in half and taking personal action to do away with these weapons. Uh, I've also seen some, and the individual who did that that I saw, some of the comments were, because he did it in order to say, I don't want this gun to take a life. Mm-hmm. Some of the comments were, but it also couldn't protect a life now. The fantasy of the hero with a gun yes. has been proven to be a misnomer time and time again. There was a, there was a, a university shooting, and an individual, what well, was a couple of years ago, and an individual had a conceal and carry license. And he could have, I suppose, theoretically been John Wayne and gone up there and, and, and shot the perpetrator in the head, but he didn't. And, he, and they asked him why. And he said, because I don't want the cops to think that I'm the one shooting up the, the university. Mm-hmm. They're going to pop me in the brain. Yeah. They're going to kill me. It is a false narrative and this idea that everyone with an ar-15 this hero fantasy that we have is um it's just not it's not realistic it's juvenile it's juvenile and so the the idea of this ar-15 being able to be used to prevent a murder or to prevent a massacre is so much less likely than that ar-15 being used to massacre Mm -hmm. so i i just that argument always kind of bugs me a little bit you know, a, a six shooter can take down this one shooter, right? You know, you don't need the AR-15 if you are going to be, um, if you do have that hero, uh, you know, fantasy. Uh, so that's my thoughts on that. Yeah. But when it comes to uh, what you were talking about regarding the cats out of the bag with guns, 320 million guns in this country, uh, 20% of the American population owns the vast majority of weapons, and I believe 3% uh, own the vast majority of AR-15s and, uh, and some assault rifles. We would have 300 million or, uh, no, roughly 100 million potential Ruby Ridge situations. If the government straight up goes with this Australian model, which happened at a very unique time in Australian's history, Australia's history, Australia also, by the way, still has a lot of guns. Yeah. They have a lot of hunting guns, uh, a lot of long uh, you know, range guns, a lot of uh, long guns. It's just uh, a nightmare situation for the federal government first of all they don't have the manpower we don't have the manpower to to exercise a hundred million ruby ridge type situations they really are kind of uh you know uh you know up up a uh, up a crappy creek without a paddle here a a crappy creek without a paddle here because uh what would it look like if the government came uh for the the guns of the people it's impossible it's impossible yeah so this whole argument it really kind of both sides 
are, 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 I think, kind of missing the mark a little bit when it comes to let's ban all semi-assault rifles. In a perfect world, they should have never been sold in the first place, the AR-15s and, uh, and things like that. But now that they are, uh, again, background checks, uh, age restrictions, absolutely, extensive mental health examinations, time, uh, time limits from purchase uh, to, uh, to actually um, getting it, you know. I mean, it's crazy. We have a we have a society where if you want to, uh, you know, uh, get an abortion, there, there's many uh, conservatives specifically who want to have a six week uh, waiting period, a four week waiting period. When it comes to this very important uh, life decision, if you and the fact that those same Republicans are against waiting periods. It just shows ultimate hypocrisy, in my personal opinion. If you pretend to be like you're this pro-life uh, conservative, well, then you should be able to classify this or file this right under that same notion. Well, of course, it's, a, it's the old uh, joke about Republicans is that they care about you until you're born and then you're on your own. So, you know? yeah. So uh, we need to have common sense gun reform and— um, we the, the, the it's just the gridlock as uh, to quote Stockdale, my favorite general of gridlock, all time. Gridlock, gridlock, <laughs> uh, is really doing this country a massive disservice. And hopefully, uh, we can see some movement in the right direction. And Donald Trump, I give very, uh, I have very little hope uh, that this administration will move forward uh, regarding gun, uh, regarding any kind of rational gun regulation, because again. Uh, they are bought and sold by this institution, the National Rifle Association, that really only has four million members. But yeah. my goodness, uh, the political clout is astonishing. Well, uh, what I would like to see uh, about that concerning AR-15s, like, yes, the, the cat's out of the bag, but why don't we just stop making them? We stop making them. Of course, people can still trade them and, you know, and buy them on, on like private sales. But I think we got enough. I don't think we need to make any more. I think that's a pretty reasonable compromise here you Gun, get to keep guns the, and smut <laughs> yeah yeah it's like guns and smut if, if we stop production right now we'd still have more than enough and you know and concerning coming out to to get guns you know i think people uh they talk about um as far as uh yeah you know like the oh you're gonna fight against the government you know the drone's gonna come in and, and wipe you out are we wiping you know did we wipe out the Viet Cong? You know, did we uh, wipe out completely everybody in Iraq? I mean, guerrilla warfare is exceedingly difficult and yeah. exceedingly dangerous, especially in a, in a country like America. I mean, if we yeah. try going after guns, if we try taking away guns from people, you're right. I mean, it's Ruby Ridge. Uh, and not only is it Ruby Ridge, but it's going to be a bunch of people banding together. And yeah. all of a sudden, you've got guerrilla armies in right. the United States that are going against the government, uh, and that is not something that we want to see. We're, no. not get, we're not getting the guns out of here. And They're we're here seeing, to stay. Yeah. We just have to figure out where we go from here. And it's been a, a, a significant rise in uh, militia groups and things like that, of all ilk, of all, of all uh, political affiliations for a, uh, for a long time in this country. And if you're working... Uh, if you have those statistics, if you're someone who works in the intelligence community, that's from my understanding when asked what keeps them up at night, that's one of the main things, is a disturbance in the force. <laughs> this is an interview with Dr. Robert Petrakis. Uh, he's been on a couple of times. A couple of times, He's yeah. a great guy. He's a total character. All right, enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>
All right, now we're honored to be joined by Dr. Robert Fitrakis. He's an American lawyer, political author, writer, political candidate, and professor. Uh, he's a jack of all trades. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Oh, glad to be on. So we have the indictments coming down from uh, from Robert Mueller. We got thirteen in, uh, indictments, three corporations when it comes to Russian uh, meddling in the U.S. election. They began this process in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, Putin likes to play the long game, doesn't he? Well, uh, in, in this case, uh, I think he's just ke- uh, keeping up with America, who's played a much longer uh, game, going back to the 1948 election in Italy when we got the Christian uh, Democrats in in power. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, there should be nothing shocking here. Superpowers meddling in each other's elections. Uh, The United States surely has been involved in a variety of coups and and, uh, buying and interfering in elections, including uh, the U.S. operatives that pretty much stole the election for Yeltsin in 1996. Mm -hmm. I believe that one was on the cover of Time magazine. So, but what has changed now? Obviously, we have uh, a lot more technology. The world is a different place than it was in 1996. Uh, Jinko genes are nowhere to be found. Uh, <laughs> cyber warfare. It seems as if the Russians are, in a strange way, more advanced in their cyber warfare techniques. Uh, both the Russians and the Chinese. But uh, you know, uh, as someone who's been writing and has written numerous books since 2004, uh, I mean, the Russians and the Chinese have understood that if you use, you know, computerized voting machines, there's an occupation called computer programmer, and you can program the results. I mean, the fact that America did not include their voting machines that are computerized and the Internet that they carry the data on for the Secretary of State's office and the boards of election as critical infrastructure uh, is really what uh, should be on trial here. So uh, the U.S. not having paper ballot backups, perhaps? I know uh, the 21 states that were heavily targeted uh, by the Russians, they say it was a very finite amount of states, a very limited amount of states that they actually were able to succeed in their cyber attack. What going forward in the 2018 midterms can we do, or specifically those 21 states do, to prevent having this kind of uh, cyber warfare attack happen again? Because I think right now what's happening is people don't know if our elections are legitimate or not. Uh, and how how can you know when you're using, you know, proprietary software? But it's just the Russians that are the problem. It's private, for-profit American corporations that secretly program these computers. And everything is a large database, from the uh, registration rolls uh, to the firmware in the machines uh, to the central tabulators to the general election uh, management systems that count and record the vote, the entire system is vulnerable. Uh, James uh, Woolsey, the former CIA director, seems to be one of the few that uh, gets it in the establishment. He co-wrote an article saying we need to go to open source software Mm. and we need to have paper in every machine. How can you have an election with a DRE, a direct recording electronic device, with no paper. You're asking for somebody to hack that machine, Mm. be they Russian, be they Chinese, be they an employee of ES&S. And again, Hard Inner Civic, the third largest vote counting machine in America, if you can hack the precinct level 
and often get into the software, which are often used uh, for voter registration roles, uh, you can then get into the precinct, which you can then get into the county tabulator because they don't use any isolationist principles to protect our voting databases. Well, why has it been such a hard process for these corporations to understand how easy it is to hack into their systems? Uh, do you think they're just um, ignorant because they don't want to address these issues? Or is it something larger than that? Because now we have a situation where there are people in this country uh, who look at Donald Trump. They see the fact he wanted to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Maybe that's why he's not uh, uh, enacting the sanctions that Congress passed on the Russians. There are people who are concerned that the Russians are uh, using our president as a puppet what what uh why has it been so difficult uh, to get a grasp on this stuff and what do you think about putin's relationship with donald trump in general uh, I, I mean i'm on the record on this i i think that there was long-standing uh you know evidence that should be investigated on uh, on the money laundering possible money laundering i think there's far more evidence there uh I have no problem going in the directions of uh, clearly the Russians uh, were looking at the databases for voter registration uh, where, you know, uh, these things have been problematic. Uh, we had a couple uh, precincts down in Cincinnati uh, where no one could vote because you couldn't download uh, the software uh, to show who was on the voting rolls. So uh, they were they were in an era, area of vulnerability. I, I think Trump's relationship uh, to Putin, I mean, I clearly see uh, Putin, you know, uses, uh, you know, the Russian mafia, uses the oligarchs there uh, to advance Russian nationalism. So I think it's fair game to look at any relationship uh, that Trump has had uh, with possible money laundering into his uh, uh, luxury uh, buildings, you know. Uh, just like I think they should look at the one in Baku in Azerbaijan mm -hmm. uh, that was rumored to be linked uh, to money laundering uh, uh, by the Iranian, uh, you know, uh, Revolutionary Guard. So I, I think we need to take a long, hard look at Trump. But on the American election front, if we're going to look at the Russians and the Chinese, we also need to look at these private small companies like Seidel that appeared to have, uh, you know, some sort of relationship uh, with the CIA. And I would suspect that nothing has ever been done because the people that have to change the system have all been elected under a system that's incredibly vulnerable. So the system has worked for them mm -hmm. uh, to their advantage. So they've seen little use in actually changing it and making it transparent. So what do you think uh, going forward we're going to see as far as like changes? Do you think we're going to see any actual changes when we go to vote in 2018 for the midterms? Uh, will there be any tangible changes that we see? Or is all this stuff just going to be done very behind the scenes and uh, kind of unbeknownst to us? Well, I think you're getting some changes. Uh, uh, number one, there should not be anyone in America voting uh, without a piece of paper in the machine. You mm -hmm. know, the... Uh, the Scantrons are cheap. They give you a ballot, you mark it, you can verify it, and they all need to have their security on. Uh, I lost a law case here in Ohio. Now, I couldn't believe it. 14 counties, uh, I sued them 
they've got these machines, these scantrons with paper, and they're turning off their audit log and they're turning off uh, their ballot imaging, mm. which is ridiculous. This technology came out of the banking industry to audit uh, and make sure everything matched up. And you're allowing people to turn off the security features. We need to have a piece of paper in every machine, and it would be very easy to code open source software uh, and let everyone look at it. Right. You know, I'm interested because we were hearing, and we're going to talk about this uh, after our conversation here, but regarding how the Russians were able to sort of play on um, the political leanings of the American people, and they really want to go to whatever side uh, they choose to go to, and they want to buy into whatever rhetoric is coming from the side that they approve of. Michael Moore, for example, being part of a uh, of an anti-Trump rally that was evidently uh, put on or presented by the Russians, financed by the Russians. Uh, what do you think it is about American culture right now that makes it so easy for the Russians to come in and play with our emotions? <laughs> well, we're obviously in a, in a period of intense populism. Uh, and remember Richard Hofstetter's book on anti-intellectualism in American history. So if you've got a, a, a group of people that aren't overly fond of facts and actually uh, you know, consider people suspect uh, that think too much, uh, you're going to be prone to uh, manipulation. The country is massively polarized. Mm -hmm. It's massively polarized in the social media. <laughs> and all the Russians had to do is amplify, you know, those kind of uh, stories, uh, right. you know, to help uh, Trump out. And, uh, you know, I think it's really incumbent on people in the democracy uh, to actually uh, look stuff up, to actually rely on facts rather than emotions. But, uh, you know, that's been the nature uh, of our system. And I think there's just been tremendous polarization, uh, particularly since uh, Obama. It does seem, and Obama correlates directly with the rise of social media, right? Mm. Exactly. Do you feel as if social media at this point is something that we have to address as just right now, for the longest time, Twitter and Facebook have been very hesitant uh, to address any kind of government control whatsoever, any kind of government regulation. Uh, now I know Facebook is going to do something where if you want to have a political ad, they send you a, uh, a postcard in the mail. Uh, to prove that you have an address here in America. It's so funny. We're like regressing back to uh, paper. Uh, what uh, do you think Twitter and Facebook should do going forward to protect people from being influenced by false media like uh, the, these Russian bots? Well, I, I, again, from my perspective, uh, uh, you've got to end Citizens uh, United, all the secret money, because not only did you have secret Russian bots, you know, we should uh, go back at least to the robber barony, uh, you know, era and know who in the hell's buying our politicians. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, to go back to a requirement that you can't, you know, that money isn't speech uh, uh, is also uh, important. But really, we're, we're in a system uh, where people rely on social media. And uh, I'm real reluctant to call in the government, but if there are foreign policy uh, powers, and I believe uh, Russia, remember this came up in 2000. You know, did uh, did Bush take 
you know, millions of dollars from the Nippon Koritsu in Japan? Or did Buddhist monks buy off or give money to Al Gore's campaign through the Lipan uh, Koritsu uh, associated with China? Hmm. In my case, I think they both did. I, I think it's inevitable that they're going to interfere. Right. What we really need to do is have transparency in the voting. Uh, we don't know what to do. And I'm not sure we want the government overly regulating unless it's against foreign uh, powers and foreign nationals directly interfering. But we've got to be able to look and touch paper uh, and be able to recount it. Part of the problem, you know, having worked in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, is, you know, in Wisconsin, 49% of those votes were never recounted uh, on paper. In Pennsylvania, 86% of them had nothing to recount. There was no paper in the machine. That is the first thing we must do is put actual ballots, actual paper back in the machine. Yeah, it reminds me of the scene from Wayne's World when Wayne opens up the camera and he's like, there's no film in this camera. And then, of course, <laughs> uh, there was in that case. Do you believe the 2016 election outcome was legitimate? You know, I mean, no one knows. I mean, that's that's all I can say. You don't know because we voted on machines in key states like Pennsylvania and some uh, in Wisconsin that have nothing to verify. You're, as long as you allow these DRE, these computer programming machines, who in the hell knows? So I think because it was, it, they're not legitimate because they're not verifiable. They fail every single test on transparency, and they're illegitimate. Just lastly, when it comes to Jared Kushner, now he's under investigation for some of his business ties uh, when it comes to the Chinese. Uh, do you feel like the whole Trump administration is just a massive potential conflict of interest? I, yeah, and it was designed that way. I mean, it's just uh, uh, bizarre. I mean, uh, uh, it looks like uh, the presidency is simply there to enhance uh, Trump's cronies. I think it's nepotism. Uh, and the Trump uh, brand. Uh, I mean, it's almost impossible to be shocked uh, by what obvious offense uh, that they commit on a daily basis. Have you ever seen any administration like this before? This is new ground, right? Because, I mean, for us, what we, well, we I, have... I read about Mussolini. Uh, oh, well, that's not I a mean... great comparison. That doesn't make anyone feel reassured. <laughs> Oh, you mean an American administration? No, or if it, if I mean, it compares to Mussolini, in your opinion, that's uh, interesting, to say the least. Well, it's corporatism. It's crony corporatism uh, and buffoonery, right? You've uh, And we've called it upon ourselves. It's, uh, you know, it's like we owe Nixon an apology. I mean, we may have to pick <laughs> him up and rerun him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, just and, and just to, to wrap it up here, when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, crony capitalism, when it comes to corruption in government, that was what Hillary Clinton was sort of, uh, you know, left out to die with. Right. She was considered to be the one who took right. all the Saudi money. In your opinion, Absolutely. if you have to if you have to guess who is more corrupt, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I think Trump because he's been at it longer and he knows how to play the game uh, better uh it was real uh, real clear that bill and hill uh, hillary were uh, you know 
old hippies gone bad. Uh, but, you know, but they did take to it with zeal with that whole Clinton Foundation. Right. At a certain point when they realized you could turn the you know, presidency into generations of easy money for your kids and your grandkids and hmm. your great-grandkids, uh, you know, they, they knew where to get the money and they knew how to get it and they knew how to make promises. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's Dr. Robert Vitrakis. Uh, is there anywhere that people can find you? I know you have your book out, uh, the book's What Happened in Ohio, which was absolutely fascinating. And uh, you talk extensively about about uh, the ballots and about um, voter voter rights and uh, and securing our vote. Yeah, the most recent one is the strip and flip election of 2016, uh, which goes into great historical detail on how easy these voting machines are uh, to manipulate and also looks at the uh, Democratic uh, primary. Uh, And uh, again, a lot of the election results in the 2016 general election and in the primary, if they had occurred outside the United States, our own government would not have sanctioned them as legitimate elections. The Mm. numbers are just uh, too funny. But people can check that out at freepress.org. All right. Strip and flip. Sounds like a good name for a steakhouse as well. Uh, thank you so much, doctor. Really, uh, really appreciate it. I know you got to get back to your students and, and educate uh, young minds. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Good interview, Marcus. Oh, yeah. Great. Wild stuff. <laughs> All right. Find us on social media as we just always, as we just panned say, it for the past. You always what? say wild stuff Wh- like, like you didn't like you weren't there. Wild, <laughs> wild stuff. Uh, the social media platforms that we just uh, maligned for the past hour. <laughs> Find us on those at uh, at Marcus Parks for everything. Ben Kissel went on Instagram. Ben Kissel on Twitter. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Make sure you go and support the show. Just rate and review it on iTunes. And uh, I guess that's it. I'll say hail yourselves because we need to hail ourselves at this point. At we that, need to come together. Point, yeah. We need to try and, something. Yes, I, absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 